Hey, good morning. I hope everybody's doing well this morning. I, I just got back from uh, Montana. I'll talk about a, a little bit on that uh, tonight at members meeting um, for those of you that are there, but had an encouraging time connecting with some of our sister churches and, and their pastors and, and was able to uh, just have some time refreshing away. So um, it's good to be, but it's good to be back with all of you. And if you haven't met me, my name's Steve. I'm one of the pastors here. And as uh, I think it was Tina said, we are studying in the book of John this morning. So if you want to open your Bibles to John chapter 12, we'll be starting at verse 12. And I was kind of wondering what Tina had in mind, because she said something like, and Steve will be leading us in our time in the word, or, and then she didn't finish her sentence. Like, it might be, or like, I don't know, Harry Potter, or, (laughs) we're going to go with the Bible though this morning. Um, so I, I'm curious what she had in mind. So uh, it's, it's pretty nerve-wracking. I shouldn't, I shouldn't poke fun at her because it's nerve-wracking to be up here. So, and you say things like that that are kind of stupid. So um, <laughs> like what I just said, not what she just said. So I'm just digging a deeper and deeper hole, aren't I? <laughs> now you know how I feel at home all the time. So is my wife here. That's, I'm, I just keep going, don't I? Like, all right, the Bible. Let's go back to the Bible. John chapter 12. You know, if you were here last week, we saw this scene last week where two kind of different things going on. We saw this scene where there was growing tension um, with the leaders of the nation of Israel in regards to who Jesus was. And they, and they were fearful that if, um, in light of the fact that Jesus had just risen someone from the dead, they were fearful that if Jesus' popularity grew too much, that the people would all rally around him, want to make, like crown him as their king and as their Messiah, and invoke the wrath of the Roman Empire upon themselves. So the, the kind of like the Jewish leaders of the day, the highest court of the land, you know, besides the Roman Empire themselves, were fearful of Jesus' popularity. You know, in the middle of what we, when we saw that happening at the beginning of chapter 12, we saw this scene with Mary and Martha and Lazarus at this dinner party where Mary just pours out her love and devotion and, and affection on Jesus because of everything that, that she believed him to be and that she saw him do. And so we see, on one hand, this beautiful picture of, of devotion, and on the other hand, we saw this growing fear of the leaders of the nation of Israel. You know, this is... This is going to be our last text before we move to that night that Andrew mentioned where, where like that, that night before Jesus was crucified, um, where, Jesus, where John doesn't talk to us about the Lord's Supper. He, he focuses on something else in that moment. But um, this is kind of like the last chance, like this, this week and next week's text actually, will be the, kind of the last chance of the nation of Israel to respond to Jesus before, um, before like that, that night before his crucifixion. You know, our text is going to break out into three sections today. Is uh, I've entitled it, We Need to See Jesus. And, and the reason why is because there's lots of different like, views that people have about who Jesus is. And what we're going to see in our text today is, as the, our story unfolds is that there's kind of three main sections. There, we're going to see this group of people respond to Jesus, and, and, but respond to the Jesus that they wanted to see. Everybody has their own expectations, their own hopes, their own desires, their own thoughts about what they need to like, make it through this life and be okay. The nation of Israel had those same things, and they, they saw what they wanted to see, the Jesus they wanted to see. Then we're going to see the Jesus that they needed to see. Jesus is going to redirect their attention to something else, something else much more important. And then we're going to see the decisive decision. Like, based on who Jesus is, all of us have this decision to make about how we're going to respond, what we're going to do, what's going to shape our life. 
And it's important for us because I think it's easy for us to fall prey to the same thing and we just adopt the, the thoughts and the ethics and the, the values of our age and we bring Jesus along with us and we don't really see him for who he is, see him for how he's represented in the scriptures. And because of that, I think we just put ourselves on this never-ending treadmill of trying to pursue stuff and, and just fill our lives with a whole bunch of things that never really accomplishes anything because we're not really following Jesus. We're pursuing all sorts of other stuff. So I'm going to read the first section, John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19, and then I'll pray and we can get into our study together. So if you could please stand with me as we read God's word. This might be a familiar passage to many of you, but I'll begin reading. John chapter 12, verse 12. This is God's word for his church. On the next day, the great multitude who had come to the feast, when they had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and began to cry out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. And so the multitude who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead were bearing him witness. For this cause also the multitude went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. The Pharisees therefore said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. Let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you for your word. I thank you for Jesus, who is worthy of the entire world's worship. And I would just ask that you would allow me to communicate your word in such a way that uh, Jesus Christ would be lifted up, that, that we would all see him with fresh eyes and see him for who he truly is, and that our hearts and our affections and our loves would be moved off the things of this world and, and redirected towards him because he's the only one that's worthy of that, and it's in him that we find life. So I just ask that you would grant us life today by your spirit. Um, as we as we go to your word, pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. You know, as we the, the section that I just read is often called like Palm Sunday, that day that Jesus came into Jerusalem, and there's this scene where everybody's cutting off these palm branches and they're waving palm branches in his hand. And we found out at the end of that section that the reason why Jesus, like so many like of the multitude, was coming out to meet him, and Josephus records for us, and I don't know how he. This is probably like a little bit of an estimation, but Josephus, the ancient historian that wrote during like right around the time of Christ, um, records that 2.7 million people would come into Jerusalem during the like Passover. So like, you know, and again, like, I don't think Josephus is there. Like one, two, three, four. I'm not sure how they, they probably check people's cell phone records. I don't know. Um, 2.7 million people are in Jerusalem. Like there's these multitudes of crowds and we find out that as Jesus is leaving Bethany where, we, where he was for the dinner party and coming into Jerusalem down from the Mount of Olives that this entire crowd goes out to meet him and they begin waving palm branches and they're crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. That word Hosanna means like save us now. And then they're calling him King it's important to realize what's going on here. Um, the palm branch thing, I never really knew this until I studied it in depth. Like, I always kind of viewed the palm branch thing as just a, like pom-poms, like just a cool thing to wave like when somebody's coming into town, right? But actually, the palm branch actually was a national symbol for the land of Judea. 
about 200 years before this, I think, you know, 180 years before this, Simon uh, Maccabeus, Simon Maccabeus led a revolt against the Seleucid Empire and drove them out of Jerusalem and set Jerusalem free. And when people were like lauding, praising like Simon Maccabeus, uh, they were waving palm branches. And from that time on, palm branches became a sign for the nation of Israel. And and it was, uh, it was actually on the coinage that they made, both like the rebels that when they made coinage against the Roman Empire had it on there, and the Romans, when they commemorated their victory over the nation of Israel, had it on there. But palm branches were a sign, a nationalistic sign that had all of these messianic overtones of wanting to like overthrow the powers that were over them and be set free. So if you have in your mind that this is like a worship service where everybody's waving pom-poms, it's not really what's going on here. This is more like a political rally. They're quoting from Psalm 118 where it says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But they add on the, the words on the beginning and end. They add on Hosanna, which means save us now. And they add on at the end, even the king of Israel. So if you have any doubts that this is political, the people of Israel are praising Jesus coming into Jerusalem as the king. And they're waving flags as they do so. The worst case scenario in the minds of the Jews has now just taken place because you have this multitude of people following Jesus because he raised Lazarus from the dead with this political hope of wanting to establish a new king. Like the, everything in Jerusalem is reaching a boiling point. And it even seems like Jesus in, in some ways is actually kind of going along with it because look what it says in verse 14. And Jesus finding a young donkey sat on it as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Jesus gets on a donkey in fulfillment of prophecy. It's from Zechariah 9.9. I think you have it up there on the screen. In Zechariah 9.9, it reads, reads this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the full of a donkey. So Jesus himself, is in fulfillment of prophecy, is coming as king, and everybody's recognizing it. Now, the challenging thing about that, though, is look what John says in, in verse 16. These things his disciples did not understand at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. What John is saying is that everybody is having this political rally. They're bringing in a, a political king. They're, they're like praising him. And then John says, and nobody knows what they're talking about. They didn't understand what they were saying. They had no idea what the reality was. They wanted a political king. They wanted freedom from Rome. They wanted all of these things. They were kind of picking and choosing. We'll see that in just a second. They're kind of picking and choosing from the scriptures about what they want to apply and what they don't. So they saw what they wanted to see. But look at Zechariah 9.10. It says this, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the bow of war will be cut off. It goes on. And he will speak peace to the nations and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. It continues. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I have set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. What Zechariah 9 in, in context is, is that you have this king that's coming to save his people. 
but he's coming in humility, mounted on a donkey, not on a war horse. He's coming in humility, and he's coming to save them, and, and it says that he, um, he disarms. It says that he does away with all of the weapons. He's not coming to overthrow anybody with violence. In fact, he comes to speak peace to who? The nations. Everyone he speaks peace to. This salvation that Zechariah is talking about has to do with the humility of the king. It has to do with the, the global influence of the king, that he's welcoming all people. It has to do with this new covenant that has something to do with, like, the shedding of blood. Apparently, the people of Israel were missing all of that. Same thing it was true in Psalm 118. In Psalm 118, the, the passage where they were saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I think it's three verses before in verse 21. It says this, I shall give thanks to you for you have answered me. You have become my salvation the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. So that's three verses before, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So they're taking this thing out, making it about this king, but it's really about a savior. And there's something mysterious going on that the savior is one who's going to be rejected. And upon this rejected savior is going to be this new thing that God builds. People of Israel had no idea. And John says that they couldn't, that they didn't understand, nobody understood it. The disciples didn't understand it for sure. The crowds didn't understand it until Jesus was glorified. What that means is that when John talks about Jesus being glorified, we'll see this as we go through the next chapters, is it's just, it's, he's looking ahead to that, the, the entire path that Jesus is about to walk to glory. It's talking about his betrayal, his crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, and now he sits at the right hand of the Father in his glory. What John's saying is that to the, to the, about this political rally that's going on is they had no idea about Jesus because if you don't understand how he was glorified, if you don't understand the, the betrayal, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and glory of Jesus, if you don't really let that take root in your hearts, shape your thinking about yourself, like transform your affections towards the Lord. If you don't really grasp all of that, you have no idea what you're talking about when you're talking about Jesus. They wanted political Jesus. And John's saying they didn't know what they were talking about because he hadn't been glorified yet because they hadn't seen him walk that path. And before I go on to the second point, like I think, it's, I think this happens all of the time today. You know, we have political Jesus. The political Jesus is alive and well in the United States. He's on our airwaves. He's on our Facebook feeds. He's in our Instagram things where, where we latch Jesus on to our political agenda. On both sides, it happens, right? I mean, I'm sure, like, on both sides of the political spectrum, people like to, like, somehow make Jesus the champion of their political, political party, their political cause, right? You guys know what I'm talking about? Sorry to break the news to you. Jesus is king, right? He looks at all the nations and he laughs at them. In fact, as I read this a couple weeks ago in Isaiah, like all of the nations are, are like specks of dust on the scales. Like how many times when you go to Winco and they're weighing your like celery and you're like, oh, could you just dust off the scales for a second because I don't want to pay too much for my celery. 
tell you what, do it, and I'll give you five bucks to tip you tell me what the, how, how the person reacts. All of it's insignificant in light of like the, the glory of Jesus. You know, not only do we have political Jesus in our day, but we have like the, um, I have these written down in my notes, but um, they're, they're all P's. Now I can't remember what they are. Oh, we have, this is a good one. Prosperity Jesus, right? <laughs> Prosperity Jesus, where as long as we kind of just like do the right things, like Jesus is going to come alongside of us and make sure that um, I've, like, make sure like my financial cares are taken care of, make sure all my physical worries are go away, make sure like everything is like hunky-dory for me so I can live my best life now, right? Prosperity, Jesus. And I'm not just talking prosperity gospel for those of you who are theologians, but like that, that thinking like takes root in our hearts. And every time we respond with like something going wrong and you're like, Lord, how could you do this to me? Because I've been like trying to follow you. And like, why does my, this thing happen to me? Anybody besides me ever do that? because we fall prey to prosperity, Jesus. Like, Jesus is not just here to, like, come alongside and make your life in this world, like, better. And then the one that, like, is an Oregonian is personal Jesus. And personal Jesus is, like, your homeboy who really doesn't ask anything of you. Or you can be, like, I can be, like, walking in disobedience to Jesus, or I can be, like, totally not prioritizing the things that Jesus says to prioritize, but me and Jesus are good. I talk to people like that all the time. You know, when Jesus' call to follow him and experience life is not like contract negotiations. He's not saying like, hey, come follow me, you know, and, and like give, give me your whole life. And then you're like, well, I'll follow you, but I'll give you like seven tenths, you know. And no, he's the king of the universe, the creator of all things. And he offers us life. And he wants us to follow him like with complete devotion and trust and dependence. That's where life is found. Not in negotiating some contract with him. Not in picking and choosing what you wanted to believe or what you want to follow. The true Jesus is worthy of everything. And we're going to see that in just a minute. You know, we see in verses 17 through 19, it's kind of interesting because this doesn't really fall like chronologically. But in 17, he says, and so the multitude who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead were bearing him witness. So all these people who in verse 16 didn't know what they were talking about were talking, right? They're telling everybody about this Jesus, this new king that's coming. And then in verses 18, you have the multitudes and they're following him because they knew he raised him from the dead. And when you're going to overthrow the Roman empire, that's a helpful ability to be able to do. Like, I'll go attack any Roman as long as I can be raised from the dead if it was wrong, right? And then the Pharisees, ironically, these guys just keep making prophecy after prophecy and not even knowing it. The Pharisees therefore said to one another, you see that we are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. Actually, at this point, it hadn't. But what do we read in Zechariah? That his, his dominion will be from sea to sea from the river to the ends of the earth. His dominion will be over the whole world. So everybody's talking and nobody knows what they're talking about. And then, the, then look what happens. Like right after this statement about the world following him, this is, the, this is the Jesus that we need to see in verse 20. Now there were certain Greeks among them who, who were going up to worship at the feast. 
So these are people not necessarily from Greece itself, but they were Greek-speaking people. And as Greek-speaking people, they, they hadn't like completely like converted to Judaism, but they were inclined to the things of, of like Judaism. And so they were coming up here to celebrate the Passover. Verse 21, these therefore came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip came and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip came, and they told Jesus. It's really interesting that John records all of that for us, because I think the reason why it's significant is that Philip, if you guys know history, like Philip of Macedon, like that's a Greek name. And so is Andrew. Andrew and Philip are both Greek names. And they're from Bethsaida, which is on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, which was a, a like bilingual city that spoke both Greek and, and like Aramaic. So there was these Greeks who happened to know that two of, the, two of the disciples also had Greek names, or Philip in particular had a Greek name. And Philip went and talked to Andrew, both of whom were from Bethsaida, because they would have known Greek. And then they went and told Jesus. Now, just a little side note, I would suspect, just knowing the culture of the ancient world, that being from Bethsaida, in fact, you hear like the kind of prejudice against Galilee in different places in the New Testament, that having a Greek name in a Jewish world, speaking like Greek in a Jewish world, kind of made Jews like separate from everybody else a little bit. But it was the very thing that made these guys unique, that made them also accessible to these Greek-speaking like, people that came up to worship at the feast who wanted to see Jesus. So as you look at yourself and you're like, man, I'm just me. Why are you guys laughing at me? <laughs> right? And you have all your quirks. You have all your weird things about you. You have all your stupid jo jokes you say at the beginning of your sermons that just dig you deeper and deeper in the ground. Don't underestimate those things that make you who you are as being avenues where God can use you to introduce people to the real Jesus. Because these people were Greek, and so they went and talked to somebody who they could identify with. And we have all sorts of different people here, which means that we should be able to reach all sorts of different people. And that's what God wants to do. And these Greeks came to Philip, and, and Philip didn't know, like, I don't know, can Greeks come see, like, our new Jewish king? Like, I don't know. So he's like, go, oh, Andrew. Hey, Andrew, what do you think about this? And, I don't know. Let's go talk to Jesus. So they go out and talk to Jesus and look at Jesus' response. It's really interesting. Jesus doesn't even really answer their direct question. He says, and Jesus answered them and said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So they, they're like, hey, we want to see this new king that everybody's talking about. And Jesus like stops and he says, no, 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 no. That's not even what's important. What's important is the glorified Jesus, not this imposter like King Jesus that you want to see. It's time for the Son of Man to be glorified. You need to see the glorified Jesus. The Jesus that was dead and buried and rose again and now bears fruit. And if you doubt that, look what he says next. Verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. What Jesus is doing is he's saying, you know what, like, they don't need to see me now. They need to see what's going to transpire in the coming pages in the Gospel of John. They need to see my crucifixion and my burial in the ground and then my bursting forth with new life and, and the seeds and fruit of that going throughout the whole world. That's what they need to see. They need to see glorified 
Jesus. He goes on. It's really interesting. And it's only that this glorified Jesus in verse 25 that's worth like following. He says this, He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world keeps it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall my servant also be. If anyone serves me, my father will honor him. What Jesus is saying is like, not only is this, this path that I'm about to walk of being, being killed, buried, and risen again to new life something that I need to walk, but guess what? If you want to find life, first thing he says he who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. When Jesus talks about hating his life in this world, what he's saying is like the, the, all of those things that you cling to as if they are so important for your happiness and success and value and identity, all of those things you cling to you sh- that, that are not in congruence with the, the word of God, all of the ethics of this age, the values of this age, the, the things that this age tells us is important, our life in this world, we should hate that. We need to turn from that. We need to die to that, like Jesus did when he was buried in the ground. If you want to see the fruit of the gospel worked in your life, you need to hate your life in this world. Then it says, and he, uh, it's only that person who will keep it to life eternal. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, like, whenever Christ calls a man, I think I have this on the screen, whenever Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. How many of you guys have heard that before? How many of you guys have not necessarily heard, heard Dietrich Bonhoeffer's, like, reference to that, but heard something similar to what Jesus has said, like, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one takes up his cross and daily, and comes after me, and the cross was not a piece of jewelry, it was an instrument of death. Takes up his cross daily and follows me, he can't be my disciple. How many of you guys have heard that? Something like that. Jesus says stuff like that all the time. And it's so easy for us just to nod our head to those things. Oh yeah, like when Christ bids him, calls him in, he bids him come and die. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know we need to die to our old life and pursue this new one, right? I wasn't going to go here, but in light of Tina's comments, the Princess Bride, right? <laughs> I should have looked up the exact quote, but when we think about this like, whole dying thing, I don't think that word means what you think it means. It's inconceivable, right? <laughs> okay, it took some people that just to get it, right? I don't think dying or hating your life in this world means what you think it means because we just nod to it and we don't really let it reside in our hearts. What he's saying is that the Jesus that this world needs to see is the glorified Jesus and he's the only one who's, who is worth following and giving our lives for. We're to die, like hate our life in this world so we can keep it to life eternal. When he calls us, he bids us to come and die. In fact, look at Jesus. This is interesting to me. In verse 27 to verse 27, he had just talked about his own death, and look what he says. Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this very purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. 
when Jesus himself like looked ahead at the path that he was going to have to walk in obedience to the Father, it disconcerted him. He was a little bit fearful about it. And he's like, man, what am I going to pray? Am I going to pray like, Father, like save me from this hour. Make sure like my bank account stays intact. Make sure like my house doesn't burn down. Make sure like I always stay healthy. Make sure like my comfort is not dismissed. For Jesus, as he looked ahead at the path he was going to walk, he was like fearful and disconcerted. And I think if, if we look at these statements, unless we hate our life in this world, we'll lose it. If it doesn't disconcert us a little bit, I don't think you understand what Jesus is saying. He wants us to like forsake all of those things and let the reality of his like death, burial, and resurrection and glorification, the fact that he sits as king over the whole world, like take root in our hearts so that we can live in full devotion and obedience and worship to him. You know what Jesus does, does, instead of praying for his own comfort, he prays in verse 28 for God's glory. And God responds, there came therefore a voice out of heaven, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Jesus says, man, my whole life is going to be lived to seek to glorify God and honor him and, and, and do what he calls me to do. And how cool is that? God says like, oh, you've already done that, Jesus, and you're going to keep doing it. I am going to be glorified. And if, you're, if your life is about your comfort, your party, your like, life choices, and it's not about like, submission to Jesus Christ as king and not about um, seeking God's glory, you're wasting your life. In fact, Jesus says you need to hate that part of your life and turn and follow him. You know, he goes on and, and he says this in verse 30. Jesus, and this is kind of brings us to our third point, the decisive decision. God just like endorses Jesus, which is a pretty good endorsement. And then in verse 30, Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world and the ruler of this world shall be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. First thing he says is like, you all need to know that the one, like, the one who's on God's side is me. In fact, God just spoke that over me. That I'm the one that glorifies him and I will glorify him again. And then he says, now judgment is upon this world and the ruler of this world shall be cast out. This is where like personal Jesus just like falls so short. Jesus isn't just coming along as like your life coach or like Siri where you can just kind of ask him for questions. You push the prayer button like, hey, Jesus, what should I do like in this relationship I'm in? And then like Jesus responds with no demands or no expectations or no like, right? And then when like internet's down and we don't get an answer, I get frustrated. Jesus isn't here just to make your temporal life better. He talks about here that, you know what, I'm going to throw out the ruler of this world. This, this time of my glorification is going to result in the ruler of this world, the one who deceives the one who destroys, the one who like wrecks our lives, who baits us with false promises that he never delivers on, like that one is going to be thrown out. That's why like this life of, of like negotiating with Jesus all the time falls so short because he's not just here to like solve like some temporal problem. You need to be delivered from the power of this world and the power of sin over you and from Satan himself. 
And Jesus' crucifixion on the cross like accomplishes that for you so that you can, what does he say? Be drawn to him. Verse 32, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. The ruler of this world is getting thrown away. Jesus is going to be lifted up from the earth and impaled upon a stake and be hanging there above the earth. And you have this choice to make. Am I going to continue to follow the ruler of this world, the values of this world, life in this world, all those things that this world says I'm going to need, all of those things that I think are so important for my like, security and my hope and my, my like, comfort in this world, or are we going to like, forsake that and be drawn at the foot of Jesus? And this is where, if there is an answer in this text to those Greeks, this is the answer. He says, all men, I will draw all men, that includes women, all men and women, all of humanity to myself. What he's saying is that there is no one who is unworthy to come to me as I am lifted up from the earth. No one. Think about that for a second. We talked to, like Andrew talked to us about the table, about how, and we come around the table. One of the things I like about walking forward is that we all come around the table together as a church. Who are the people you wouldn't want to eat dinner with this evening? If you have anybody on your list, guess what? They're included in the all men that Jesus talks about. The Jews had a big list. It was like everybody besides them, right? Like maybe that's a short list. You can decide. What, what, this, this thing that, that's being built upon the rejected cornerstone, this church that God's building, these as he's gathering people, as he dies in the ground so that he can bear much fruit, as he's bringing in this worldwide harvest from people on both sides of the political spectrum, people on like, like the moralist and the licentiousness person. There is no one who cannot come to the foot of the cross and become part of the family of God. But when I say that, it's important that we don't make this... Like, Jesus Christ calls all men without distinction. But that doesn't mean he, he calls them without expectation. That's what Jesus just finished talking about, right? There is something, if you want to come to me and, and be freed from the ruler of this world, like, you need to hate that and follow me. He who, what, is, what did he say back in verse 26? If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall my servant be also. You need to come to Jesus. And, we, and the scriptures talk about it all over in, in repentance and faith. You turn from your old way of life and you come to Jesus as the one who paid the penalty for that as he was lifted up from the earth so that we can come to him. You know, John talks about these, this, this kind of like the battle for our souls that wages in, in 1 John 4. Chapter 2. It's in First John chapter 2. I think I have it on the screen. And I have to think maybe like John like learned some of this lesson from like these events that unfolded here. He says this, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. He goes on and says, oh, I guess I thought he went on. <laughs> Never mind. Do I have it there? Oh, yeah. For all that is in the world... The lust of the flesh and the lust of eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Do you hear that? The, the lust of the flesh, 
which means those things that kind of like rise up from within us, like our, our internal desires are not a like safe measure are not an accurate measure of like the path we're supposed to walk. If, if we're just living in light of our internal desires, we're not, we have not like hated our life in this world. The lust of the eyes, all those things we see around us that are telling us this is what you need, 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 and you can fill in the blanks, right? For whatever it is you think you need besides like devotion to Jesus. And the boastful pride of life, like, like man, I can be my own king. I can make my own rules. I can set my own standards. I can do all of this. Like, what is it? It's not from the Father, but it's from the world. And do I have one more slide, or is that the end? The yeah, here it is. The world is passing away. The ruler of this world has been cast out, is what Jesus had said. And also it's lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. You know, every single day when we wake up, like you young people, as you're getting ready to go to school, whether you're in like K-12 school, or as you're going off to college, like you wake up and that day you're going to have decision after decision after decision. This isn't just talking about that moment of salvation. This is talking about who you follow in your life. You're going to have decision after decision after decision. Am I going to live according to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, or am I going to seek to do the will of God? Am I going to let everything around me shape me, or am I going to let the reality of Jesus' death and burial and resurrection, what it says about me, what it says about my, my value before him, what it says about redemption, what it says about what I really need in this life, and what I really hope for, and what I should really give my energy to. And the same thing is true for all of us, whether you stay at home and take care of your kids, whether you go to work and, and like, do it day in, day out. Like, you're not just there as, like, to, to make a paycheck. You're there as a representative of Jesus Christ. And, and what, or whether you show up and have to be a pastor, right? Or whatever you do, the choice is the same. Being a pastor is particularly dangerous because you can dress it up in all sorts of religious garb. And really, you're just kind of pursuing your own lusts and your own desires and your own hopes. But what Jesus says, you know, he who hates his life in this world, or he who loves his life, loses it. And he who hates his life in this world shall keep it to life eternal. And Aaron, you can come up. You know, and the reality is this, is it's Jesus, the glorified Jesus, who was glorified through that path of suffering in our place and for our sin and being raised to the dead and glorified to the Father, he is the only one that's worthy of our, of, for us to follow. He's the only one that's worthy of our praise. He's the only one that's worthy of our devotion. He's the only one that's qualified to speak to what we really need in this life. And, we, and so every single day, we're faced with that decision. If you're here and you've never placed your faith in Christ... Just know this, like the stakes are real. The enemy is out there. There is deception and destruction on one path and there is life eternal on the other. And Jesus says, like, come to me in repentance and faith and in, in trusting in me and you can have life. So because he's the only one that's worthy of our worship, because he's our only hope, please stand and let's sing to him together.